Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our Connections Director, Jen Lewis, for this week's message. So you heard that right. The title of this sermon series is How Not to Be a Jackwagon. I can assure you I didn't make up that title, but I definitely think it's an appropriate series for us to be covering during this time. Our culture is so full of so many people acting like jack wagons. I mean, right now there's just so much hurt, so much division, so much anger, and then you add a very divisive election on top of it, and it's, it just feels crazy at times. You know, we can wake up in the morning and and feel hopeful and positive about the day. I mean, of course, this happens after you've had at least one cup of coffee. But then as soon as you turn on the news or the radio or look online, we're reminded it seems like everyone hates everyone. We're convinced that everyone else is an idiot and our culture is is just going to hell in a handbasket faster than we ever thought was possible. And then we turn on the presidential debate and we see the two men vying for the highest office in the land, behaving like toddlers, fighting over the last piece of candy. And they're modeling for us how we should act. It's as if if all decency and all civility have left our consciousness. Like we don't even know how to have a civil conversation with someone we don't see eye to eye with. And so we either proudly and boldly unfriend unfriend people on social media, or we see people berating other people in, in the public square of the internet. It's as if we think people don't have feelings on the internet or on our social media um, platforms, like they aren't someone's mother or brother or sister or spouse. We see other people demeaning and belittling others. We, we see people calling each other names and people literally thinking that other people are their enemies and are evil because they don't agree with them. There's such a lack of decency and respect. And because of this, there's such strife. And there really is this tendency for us to act like jack wagons. We're divided in opinion and perspective. And so people don't hold back. It's like there's no attempt for self-control. And so the division and the jack wagon behavior spreads and gets more and more commonplace. Our societal bad habit is like a snowball getting bigger and bigger and it's gaining momentum every day as we get closer to the election. Unfortunately, the church and people who call themselves Christians are not immune to this tendency. And we get caught up in the momentum of our culture as well. So when When Chris assigned me this first message in the series, I thought about specifically talking about self-control. I thought about Proverbs 25 that says, like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Or I thought about Titus 2, um, where it says, for the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. But what I know is that our jack wagon tendencies go deeper than just behavior management or behavior modification. That what I really wanted to do in this message was to look at some of the reasons why we do what we do. What what are some of the sources behind our behavior? 
because we know that our behavior starts from what's going on in the inside. We must look at what it is, what are those sources of jackwagonness, so we can root it out in our lives and make sure it stays out of our lives. And I would venture to guess that every one of us here, even if we're new to Christianity, we know that Jesus taught that we are to love others and not just love others, but even our enemies. We know that God doesn't want us to treat others poorly. I mean, it's one of the biggest themes we hone in on in our Christian teachings today. After all, Jesus said the best way to sum up all the commandments of God is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. This isn't new to us. So why do we fail at this over and over again? Why do we lose our temper or think horrible thoughts about other human beings? You know, like pretending that these people on the news or on our social media feeds are somehow not our neighbors and don't qualify for this commandment. I would submit to you today that one of the main sources of our jack wagonness today is fear. And that fear comes from us trying to trust in anything other than God. Now, let me repeat that because I want us to, to really hone in on that to understand what I'm saying in this message. I believe that one of the main sources of jack wagonness or bad behavior on our part is often fear. And that fear comes from us trying to put our trust in anything other than God. Take a couple minutes and think about it. Think about ways that people are mean to other people in our society today. And of course, when I mean people, I certainly don't mean you because you've figured it all out, right? Yeah, right. So take a couple minutes and think about times recently when you were a jerk, when you were unkind to someone. You know, maybe it was a confrontation at work. And if you think about it, your behavior stemmed from the fact that you didn't want someone else to think you were, you know, you didn't want to look bad at work. You were afraid of your reputation or someone's opinion of you. Or maybe it was a social media argument. And to be honest, you were terrified that people thought, think and, and act so differently than you do. Or you were terrified that if enough people think this way, the world is spiraling down the toilet bowl quicker than you thought. Maybe it was a knee-jerk reaction to something your kid did. And if you're honest, really you were just terrified that they were gonna grow up to be a jack wagon and your reaction came more from that fear than from what they actually did. I mean, I could go on and on about examples, but when we dig deep, fear is often the actual motivator of our bad behavior. And that fear comes from us trying to put our trust in things that aren't trustworthy. Instead of putting our trust in God and in his ways, we try to rely on ourselves or on others. And you and me and anybody else are honestly not worthy of the same kind of trust that God is. We human beings have proven over and over again that we will fail. Now, I was a history teacher and I love history. And so what I wanna do with our time today is I wanna look at how misappropriated trust has caused people to act like jack wagons throughout history and how appropriately placed trust has helped people avoid being a jack wagon because of fear and actually 
has allowed those people and enabled those people to change the world. I heard a quote recently that said, if there's one thing we can learn from history, it's that we don't learn from history. How appropriate for this time. But today, I want us to actually learn from history. Now, for the record, this is not the only time in human history where people have behaved badly. This isn't the only time in history where people have treated each other poorly. In fact, there have been times that have been much worse. And I know that we look around at the unrest in the cities and, you know, in the big cities on the streets and we, we, we turn on our TV and we see the, the talking heads going at it, you know, fighting with each other and arguing about things. And we, we really do think to ourselves and even say to each other, I can't, I don't know if it can get much worse. But trust me, if you look back in history, it can. One of those times in history is recorded about in the books of Judges, in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Judges covers the time period in history right after the Israelites settled in the Promised Land. But it was before they were organized under one king. So the Israelites had been freed from, from slavery in Egypt. They traveled through the desert for 40 years and had finally come to the land God had picked out for them. So they were finally established and finally became a settled nation. And they weren't connected by one leader, but they had this common belief in history with their God. Now, one would think that this would have been an incredibly good time in history. I mean, they had just watched God do amazing things over and over again to free them from slavery and to lead them to the land flowing with milk and honey. They'd been given God's rules on how to live well, and, and those rules showed them how to um, live well individually as well as communally. There was no central government per se, but they were expected to live as a united people, following the rules of God, trusting him, and trusting in his ways. So they were in this great land with a great system of rules, and they had this amazing God who obviously loved them and wanted to bless them. I mean, it sounds like it was perfect. Short of going back to the Garden of Eden, it sounds great. But over a span of years, the Israelites began to take their eyes off of God. And instead of trusting in him, they decide to look around them and they decide that they know better. Instead of trusting in God, they decide that they're going to trust in themselves. And what we see is that society went downhill. Sin and crime and murder and abuse of all kind were everywhere. It, you know, honestly, if you, if you read through the book of Judges, and we don't have time to do that right now, but you will see this phrase more than once where they said, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In fact, the last book or the last verse in the book, after describing a horrible act that was committed against a woman, um, there resulted in a massacre of one entire tribe of Israel. And then after that, a bunch of women were kidnapped and forced into marriage. And this is the end of the book. And the last statement in the book says, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. One of the biggest takeaways that we can get from this time in history is that when we take our trust and misplace it on ourselves and not on God, we are headed in the wrong direction. 
and jackwagonness will abound to the highest level. They thought they knew better. They thought they could figure it out on their own how best to live. They trusted in their own judgment and no longer looked to God for direction and for wisdom and on how to live their lives well and how, how to live justly and, and live in a well-functioning society. And they decided they could figure it out on their own. And when doing that, people treated other people in ways we can't even imagine. They thought so highly of themselves that they dismissed the wisdom of God. And don't we see that today? Now, now stop right there, because I know what we will instinctively do when I ask that question. We'll instinctively say in our minds, yeah, they do think they know better than God. But let's bring it back home for a minute. We do this too. When we don't think about others before we think about ourselves, or when we respond to, in an unchristlike way in a situation where we find ourselves in, we're doing the same thing. We act as if we know better on how to deal with a situation than God. We don't trust his teaching on, on how to love others or how to consider others better than ourselves or to serve others or how to speak the truth in love or be quick to listen and slow to speak. We ignore this advice and, and behave in ways that scripture does not support. And in essence, what we're doing is we're saying, I know better than God for this situation. And when we see this, in our own lives, and we see our own abilities aren't cutting it, we become afraid. And in that fear, we become desperate and we do more stupid things. For some of the, us, this is a real struggle. Now, for others of us, it might be something a little bit different. It's not that we necessarily trust in ourselves, but maybe unbeknownst to us, we've placed too much trust in others, in particular, in those in authority over us thinking that if we get that right person in office, it'll fix everything. If you keep reading in the Old Testament, you find out that the, after the time of Judges, there comes a time where Israel turns to the neighbors, looks around them and decide, you know what, this isn't working out for us. So we know that trusting in ourselves isn't going to be the best thing. But instead of them placing their trust back in God, they decide they want to put their trust in a king. They want to trust a government over God. In the book of 1 Samuel, we read that the Israelites go to the prophet, the judge, he's both, Samuel, and they ask for a king. And do you know what we learn from this history? That you can't even trust appointed kings of God's chosen nations. Even men picked by God to lead the people of God are not fully reliable. Over and over again in the rest of the Old Testament, we see the kings fail to trust in God. And as a result, the people follow and they do not trust in God. In our time, it's tempting for us to put our trust in our amazing country. You know, it's founded on Judeo-Christian concepts. And generally, even though there's some disagreement about all that, we still function at a basic level with that worldview. And we can be tempted to put our hope and our trust in our country and, and, or maybe in our leaders or maybe we can't necessarily put our trust in leaders, but we still put our hope and our trust in the framework of the country and in the idea that eventually if we choose the right leader, all will be made right again. And I mean, it makes sense to some extent. God has blessed us mightily, even with all of our mistakes 
in our history, I mean, generally speaking, our country has sought to right past wrongs and to get, to get better when we have seen something that needs to be improved. But even this, we cannot place our ultimate trust and hope in our country or its leaders. Because if we do, fear will rear its ugly head again and jackwagon behavior will be the result. What if government changes a law or amends the Constitution, for instance? Or what if the leader we want doesn't get elected? Or what if no one we even think is respectable runs for office? How do we function? If our hope and our trust is in government alone, we will fear any of the waves that will inevitably come. And that fear will motivate us to act poorly. We will act out of desperation and out of frustration. We will engage, engage in angry debates or call people evil who want something different than we want. We will view people as the enemy. We'll write nasty comments at the end of articles online. You know, not caring if the tone is unloving or even more dismissive than the original article. But what we see in the Old Testament is that even if God has his blessing on a country, it doesn't stop God from disciplining that country if need be. The Jews, God's chosen people, couldn't even put their trust in the success of their nation because their nation at times deserved to be punished by God. And God allowed the nation to experience suffering they deserved the consequences of their decisions. And even in the United States of America, even if we are favored by God, that favor does not stop God from bringing judgment when it's needed. Our hope and our trust cannot be misplaced and put on our government or even on our nation because none of it is eternal. None of it's consistent or even secure. And all of it, whether people admit it or not, is under the rule and authority of an all-loving, all-knowing God who is at the same time a just and fair God. Now, let's keep going through history because those two were kind of showing you the examples of misplaced trust. But I want to show you some encouraging examples. We're going to start with the early church. Again, if you think times right now are worse than ever, you are not familiar with early church history. In church, it, the, our church, the Christian church, was born during the Roman Empire. Talk about a corrupt government and immoral time. It was really bad. This was the time when Christians were burned at the stakes to light up the parties of the emperor. And persecution of the church was widespread. Christians were rounded up and taken to the Colosseum where thousands of people watched them being ripped apart and devoured by wild animals. But even if you take Christians out of the picture, society as a whole was absolutely a mess. Human life had no value at all. Inf infanticide was, was commonplace. Slavery was a regular and accepted practice. The, the activities of regular people was just what we would consider totally immoral. Women were considered nothing more than property. And every whim and desire of the rich and the powerful, no matter how it might negatively affect others, were carried out without question. People functioned out of extreme selfishness, pride, and lust. It was the book of Judges all over again. And the church was just getting started in this environment. I mean, can you imagine? They knew they couldn't put their trust in the government because the government was after them. 
And they realized as they watched society around them that they couldn't put their trust in their own judgment because they saw how it failed every person next to them. And it was in this time in history when the words of scripture were written. Those words that we now call scripture were the letters written to the early church. Words like what we read in 2 Peter 1, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness mutual affection and to mutual affection love. As they watched their friends and families persecuted in ways we have never seen in our day, they were told to live differently and to love abundantly. In Romans 12, Paul, writing to the Roman church, said, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, Give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And in the letter to the Philippians, what we now call chapter two, it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. Then we, we look at the, book, at the letter for, to the Ephesians. It says, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Can you, be, can you imagine knowing that your friends and your family members have been taken to the Colosseum or burned at the stake, and those are the words being written to you? You being told during this time to get rid of all bitterness and to love your enemies. These words were written in a time and a place where there was so much dysfunction and so much hostility we cannot even imagine. But the early church heeded these words. Meeting house to house, much like what we're about to do in, in a few weeks when we start church at home. They read copies of these letters over and over again. And they actually did what they said. They did it on a consistent and real basis in the face of fierce persecution and at risk to their own safety and well-being. In the book called The Way Back, Phil Cook and Jonathan Beck write this. Christians astonished the ancient world with their radical perspective on humanity. In spite of public persecution, 
Christians would press deeper into societal problems, such as moving into more intense areas of the plague to minister to those infected. But there were plenty more ways these early Christians left a profound mark on the world, such as elevating the role of women in the culture, refusing to have abortions, valuing family, and valuing female children as much as male, men loving and caring for their wives and not pursuing sex outside of marriage, experiencing joy even in persecution, committing to help the poor and the needy, and pulling their meager possessions to share with those in need. You see, they put their trust in God and in his ways and not in their own. And because of this, not only did they survive, but they thrived. They resisted the urge to fight back in their own strength or in desperation behave badly. And they chose to trust in God's wisdom and it changed the world. You know, one of the main reasons our world is, has not gotten as bad as it was then is because even if people do not believe in God, they ascribe to the teachings of Christ because of the lasting impact of the consistency of the early church in the world. Now, if you think that example is still too far removed in history, like the early church, they knew the apostles who knew Jesus, and so it just seems so abstract to you, I want to share with you another time in history. This will be the last one. But it's the time right around when the United States was becoming a nation. There was a man named William Wilberforce who was beginning his journey with God. And he lived in England. And he was born toward the end of what we now call the Great Awakening, which was this a revival among the poor in Europe. Now, the wealthy and the elite thought religion was beneath them, and they looked down on anybody who actually took their faith serious. England at the time had all kinds of issues, but there was this brewing movement of Christians in kind of the lower classes that was starting to, to move up in the ranks of, of those in wealth. And Will, Will, William Wilberforce was one of them. At this time in England, the slave trade was well underway. And while there, there wasn't much slavery in England, the English were benefiting from the trading of slaves all around the world. They were shipping them. They were traveling and sending ships to Africa and then taking them to the West Indies, dropping them off and getting the sugar that those slaves made. It was a horrible time. There were no child labor laws at the time, and so children as young as six and seven were working 14 hours a day in, in dangerous and filthy conditions. People at the time didn't care about the poor. I mean, the common thought was, if you're poor, it's your fault. I mean, even now, we may not agree on how to take care of the poor, but pretty much everybody agrees that we need to help the poor. Alcoholism was rampant at the time. And so all the dysfunction that comes with that was everywhere. There was abuse and neglect and, and poverty and, and early death and disease. You know, to just give you kind of a, a real quick example of something that shows kind of the, the, the depth of how bad it was at the time. In London, 25% of all single women were prostitutes. I mean, it tells you something about the men at that time and also how it was for women. It just so happened that Wilberforce was a young and up-and-coming member in Parliament when he gave his life to Christ. 
And instead of leaving government, he chose to be a light within it. After deciding to stay in government, he wrote in his journal, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, when I hear that phrase, reformation of manners, I think, yeah, we need that now. But really what he meant was kind of this idea of bringing God's way back into the ways of life. He said he wanted to make goodness fashionable. And like the early church, he chose to trust not in his own abilities and not in government. Now he used government, but his trust was never in government. His trust was in God and in his ways. And because of that, like the early church, he brought fruit to bear in his culture and his society. His trust in God and in his ways motivated him not to be a jack wagon, but to engage the culture in godly ways, to make a difference. He gathered around him a group of other Christians with the same desires to bring God's will and God's ways back to society. They built houses near each other and lived life together, like the early church and, and really like we're about to do with church at home. They prayed together every day. They met together and encouraged each other. They raised their kids around each other and they, they strategized together. And through their work, they helped to abolish not only the slave trade, but ultimately all of slavery in all of England. They helped to reform the prison systems. And there was one woman in particular named Hannah Moore in the group. And she was, she was artistic, she was an author. And so she worked hard to write Christian themes and concepts into poetry and literature so that it became the entertainment of the day, so that it really did change and influence the way people lived out their lives. Wilberforce and his friends influenced the culture so much that the very climate of society was transformed. There were social reforms to help the poor and those working in horrible conditions. Rich people went from looking down on the poor to meeting together to figure out how to help them. And like the early church, William Wilberforce and his friends, by trusting in God's ways and by obeying God's instructions, were able to import God's perspective into culture. They didn't do it through force. They didn't do it through putting others down. They didn't do it through treating people poorly. They did it by trusting in God first and in his ways. So why do I bring all of this history up when I'm talking about not being a jack wagon? Well, honestly, because I want us to deal with one of the biggest underlying issues of jackwagonness, and it's fear. I understand that we can look around our world right now and we just get panicky at how bad it is. And out of that panickiness, we respond with desperation and frustration. And we don't remember history. And, and when we don't, we feel hopeless and we feel like maybe God has abandoned us. And we become convinced that it's the end. And we tell ourselves, well, just screw it all and run to the hills. Or we react out of our own fear instead of under the direction of the, and leading of the Holy Spirit. And we do things we shouldn't do. I know it feels so bad right now in so many ways. But it has been worse. And I would bet that people in all of these generations I just talked about, and in many other generations, those people thought the end was coming right then. And honestly, it could happen anytime. Jesus, Jesus could come back this afternoon. 
But God left his timing a mystery on purpose so that we would continue to look to him, continue to trust him, to be refined by him, and to continue to work to advance his kingdom in his way, according to his will. And all the while, from generation to generation, God continues to prevail. And he has fulfilled his purposes for those times and he will do it again. Now, that doesn't mean it will be easy. It doesn't mean that it will even all get better in our lifetime. But we cannot let our fear of the times and conditions we live in dictate how we live and react to those around us. Jesus' words to love our neighbor came at a time when loving your neighbor would result in being burned at the stake. We do not get a pass to be a jack wagon just because the times we live in are stressful or scary. These times, it just means in these times that we have to press in more to God in ways that we may haven't before. We have to look at, to him whose ways are best, to the God who is the only one worthy of our trust and our hope. So how do we do that? Well, some of us have just experienced how impactful it is to pray twice a day on our knees with those we love. We have to continue to do this. We have to continue to pray and to spend time with the one who is trustworthy. Because when we pray and when we spend time reading his word every day, we get to know how faithful he truly is. We are reminded of his ways and his will. We learn the different attributes of, of how he works and what he does. And we see how worthy he is of our trust. And we also realize more and more how even if everything around us crumbles, we still can hope in him. And it's in this spending time with God that we are shown by his spirit where we are acting in a way that is out of his will, where we are being jack wagons. But then also in that time, we are giving marching orders and direction on how to live well in the times we find ourselves. Just like the early church and just like Wilberforce, we can engage our culture when we do it the way God wants us to do it. So throughout the rest of this series, we're going to look at how to do that without being a jack wagon, how to love well, how to listen well, how to care for others well. We need to be reminded, just like the early church did, on how to live in unfriendly times. So between now and then, your assignment this week is to spend time with God every day, intentional, quiet time, praying and listening and reading. And then come back next week ready to get some tangible strategies on how to live life out well in the days we find ourselves. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are faithful and you are good and you are trustworthy. I thank you that you have seen people, people through troubled times before. And I thank you, Lord God, that you are with us no matter what. Father, where we need to adjust our behavior or our attitudes or our perspectives, I pray, Lord God, that you would help us, that you would show us. And Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to be a light in these times. Help us to be your hands and feet. Help us to be your arms that hug and hold 
and a voice of peace in the midst of chaos. Lord, have your way in us and be glorified through us. May your kingdom be advanced even now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.